Today on Ag News Daily. We send a lot of bees. We send tens of thousands of bees out of our state uh, for these winter months, and uh, we're just a drop in the bucket. February 2nd, Groundhog's Day edition, Thursday, 2023. Isn't that like the best way, Delaney, to deliver the date? I don't know if I said anything in the right sequential order, uh, but I think the listeners will get a picture, right? I think so, too. Has Puxatawney Phil made his prediction yet? Yes, he has. And uh, the poor guy saw his shadow, scared to death, went back into his burrow. We have six (laughs) more weeks of winter. That's not the news I wanted to hear today, Tanner. No, but it seems fitting considering uh, most of the U.S. right now is in an extreme cold snap. Extremely cold weather is continuing to hit the Midwest here in our area. Wind chill warnings and advisories are in place from northeastern Montana all the way through northern Illinois. North Dakota saw temperatures fall as low as negative 50 degrees, which feels I feel bad because I think agronomy on ice is happening right now. And uh, that would probably make that event a little bit less fun. Oh, yeah. Yes, absolutely. However, we still have the ice storm warnings in place for parts of Texas, Oklahoma, and Arkansas. It is considered to be significant icing, and uh, we hope that there are no power outages and down trees, but that certainly could be a result of up to a quarter inch of ice that is being expected. That is unpleasant for sure, Tanner. Good time to go on a vacation somewhere warm and tropical. Yes, if you could get there. I've heard of plenty of flight delays already. That is certainly true. I'm going to take us down to South America here. Stonex Brazil has raised their production estimates on both corn and soybeans today. They said even with some losses from drought stricken areas in the south, areas to the north are making gains to offset those losses. Brazilian soybean production was raised to 154.209 million metric tons, up about 100 million metric tons from their January estimate and well above the USDA's estimate of 153. If realized, Tanner, this would be the all-time new record crop for Brazil and would also represent a 19% increase from last year. Hikes, 19%. That is a big jump. i tell you what, the Fed didn't quite make that big of a jump yesterday. We did get the quarter of a percent hike that everybody was predicting. The most shocking part of the news yesterday, Delaney, is that the Fed chair stated that there are likely to be no rate cuts this year. We discussed a lot of in our earlier headlines this week that the potential for another two rate hikes followed by recession hitting in the third quarter, which would trigger the Fed to respond. But according to the chair, it is obvious that Uh, These are his words. It's obvious that we are beginning to get in front of inflation, but the battle is not over yet. We do not predict to see anything being reduced or pulling further into the year. It's going to take some time for this disinflation to spread throughout the economy. The news conference was following their quarter percent hike that I just discussed. 
he said expect maybe a couple more rate hikes to still and go to still go into effect for this year and i just don't see cutting rates this year is something that is on our agenda so that's what markets are going to re uh, be reacting to today delaney is not necessarily the quarter percent hike now but the prediction that there won't be any softening to the policy in 2023. No, but at least he indicated from what I read, Tanner, that there won't be drastic interest rate cuts the rest of the year. And there might be a few more, but likely not going to be anything major. That's correct. Yep. But it certainly doesn't look like they plan on releasing their monetary or relinquishing their monetary policy standards at all. It may just be small increments upward. And I was also listening to some podcast commentary last night. So they're targeting 2% inflation. So we're at, I think, uh, five and a half currently. So we got a little ways to go. That's correct. Quite a bit, quite a bit of work to do. I just will hit another quick headline here. Uh, Companies that will have some work to do on their side is coming out of the Ohio-based Umberforth Manufacturing, as it just announced that will purchase Orthman's Manufacturing product lineup. This acquisition includes fertilizer application, tillage equipment, and three-point mounted planters for John Deere. The business lineup of the conveying systems for Orthman will be retained ownership through the president, John McCoy. So otherwise, Underfirth has announced their purchase of the rest of Orthman's lineup. Well, Tanner, changing us back to a little bit of economic headlines here. Of course, the Fed is on a mission to squash that inflation like we were just talking about there. And part of the way that they're trying to do that is to push unemployment levels back up. But according to the latest JOLTS report, job report, they were expecting to see a drop in employment to 10.25 million jobs after declining a little bit in November. But instead, we saw the opposite effect, Tanner, and saw a number of jobs increase in December. That certainly was not what the Fed was expecting to see or the economy was expecting to see as far as the jobs report goes. But today's figure marks the highest jobs level seen since July. Uh, Biggest Increases were seen in accommodation and the food services sector. Yeah, that would make the most sense, obviously, as you look at the industries that we continue to see in our everyday lives. It's going to hit a bunch of a string here of kind of military type headlines. North Korea's foreign ministry said that the door remains shut for talks with the United States on winding down its atomic arsenal. They are beginning to set the stage for renewed provocations by pledging to respond to threats coming from Washington in maybe a militarily type fashion. Israeli jets were bombing the Hamas targets in, along the Gaza Strip yesterday. Warplanes bombed parts of the Gaza Strip with uh, adding totals to their bloody month and the animosity between Palestinians and Israelites. They stated here, according to their Twitter, that they struck a production site for raw chemical material production, along with a weapon manufacturing site that belonged to the Hamas terrorist organization. And the U.S. has released uh, news that they are expecting to send Ukraine precision bombing kits that will turn existing unguided munitions or dumb bombs into precisely guided smart bombs known as a joint direct attack 
Impact Musicians Plan, or JDAMS. According to a lot of the uh, reports coming out of U.S. officials, these kits and fins will provide precision guidance for the existing munitions in their fleet in a counterattack to the Russians. So a lot going on around the world as far as confrontation goes, Delaney. Certainly sounds that way, Tanner. Well, North Dakota Farmers Union, NDFU, has a new bill that they are trying to work out of state legislation. And the reason I bring this up is because I think a lot of other states may watch what North Dakota does here. But specifically, there is a House Bill 1371 that would allow meat packers such as Smithfield, which is, of course, a Chinese company and JBS, a Brazilian company, to own cattle feedlots and hog barns. Uh, I haven't unpacked this legislation too much, but... The two companies in total own about 80% of the beef slaughter and NDFU president Mark Watney is concerned that that would be more advantageous for them to own cattle in North Dakota and be able to price fix. So there is this new legislation coming to North Dakota's state legislators to decide whether or not to allow companies such as these and foreign companies in general to be able to allow physical animals in the state of North Dakota. Wow. Yeah, you're right. States will be watching to see how that presses forward. Last little headline that I've got for today comes from Polaris. They have announced their 2023 lineup. Their new Ranger Crew Texas edition comes with a 2,500-pound towing capacity, 1,000-pound bed capacity, and comes with a 4,500-pound winch factory installed and then they take the step back down to the north star edition which comes with the full cab full crank down windows that has a 3500 pound winch on it as well but capacity does start to slide the 850 high lifter is a high clearance uh, side of things delaney the reason these are being featured today is they were award winners at the ces technologies event that we've been reporting on and then their smallest, most compact, which starts at $10,199. I expected that to be a lot higher, Delaney, is the Sportsman 570 HD. It only has a 1,350-pound towing capacity, has 270 pounds of rack capacity, both front and rear. Comes with a front hitch, but you have to add the winch to it. So it looks like capacity in the side-by-sides and four-wheeler categories, at least from Polaris, have increased capacity, which is the reason they had won their awards. Deer, as we had talked about earlier, took home more post-show awards for innovation. That came from their sea and spray ultimate technology and the electronic variable transmission, their EVT coming out of their eight series tractors. And of course, the capacity with air boom and fertilizer spreading system for their 800R floaters. So a couple of late awards coming out of the CES event, Delaney, but that's what I've got for today. I have just one other quick headline here, Tanner, and that is retail fertilizer trends are continuing to drop. Retail fertilizer prices specifically UAN 28 continued to see declines here in January as DTN tracked for the fourth week of January, a decline in prices. Now, Tanner, the big news that I've been reading here is some analysts are mixed on the outlook here for fertilizer. Some are suggesting that this is going to be the trend moving forward and fertilizer prices are on their way down. Others are suggesting this is just a short-term blip and longer term, we should expect to see fertilizers 
turn back around and head back up the other direction. However, seven of the eight major fertilizers are lower compared to last month, which is significant move of 5% or more. And leading the way, as I mentioned, there was UAN 28. But yes, lots of differing opinions on what we actually see happen here longer term with this fertilizer market. Absolutely. But as you just reflected on the fertilizer market, how did grains reflect to Ponsatoni Phil seeing his shadow? <laughs> well, I don't think grains reacted too much to that, aside from perhaps wheat, which is going to be trembling thinking about some a potential additional uh winter weather impact on the winter wheat crop there. But regardless, we saw grains push higher in the overnights. March corn added four pennies in the overnight will open at 685. New crop soy, uh, new crop corn, excuse me, will open a penny and a half higher at 597 and three quarters. March soybeans added 10 cents in the overnight clocking in at 15.30 and new crop soybeans will open seven and three quarters cents higher at 13.68. Hard red winter wheat was unfazed by Puxitani Phil seeing his shadow tanner and opened, will open three and a half cents higher at 8.87 and three quarters. In the livestock markets here today, they are seeing mostly red across the screen. April live cattle will open 80 cents lower at a buck 62.22. March feeders down $2.90 at $1.8325. And February, uh, April lean hogs down $2.12 at 84.30. Tanner, without further ado, let's turn it over to a conversation we had with Andy Joseph. Beekeeping is a fun and exciting, important part of the agriculture industry that we haven't really talked about a whole lot on the podcast. So joining us today, we have Andy Joseph, the Iowa State Apiarist. Andy, beekeeping is such a unique practice to get into, I feel like. What got you into beekeeping or interested in it? Well, yeah, you know, it's it's a lot of different things for a lot of people, but for me, it was making booze. <laughs> I was in Kentucky. I, I grew up in Ohio and then moved to Kentucky for like nine or 10 years, and that's where I started keeping bees. And um, while I was uh, still in Ohio, I had a job actually building swimming pools, just kind of labor, you know, digging holes with a shovel. And we put in a swimming pool for a person that was a hobby beekeeper, and they had a few hives. And, uh, you know, I grew up in the country in central Ohio and we were surrounded by corn and, and cattle and hogs and not too terribly different from here in Iowa. And, uh, you know, I cannot really remember ever being exposed to beekeeping before about that time around 17 or so years old. And, um, that just put the idea in my head and I thought one day I'm going to do that. And then, uh, you know, years passed and I, I moved to Kentucky and I was hanging out there and I had started home brewing and I had the idea to make like a mead, a honey wine. And uh, I made a couple batches of that with honey that I had purchased from a local co-op. And I thought, you know, there's that idea of having these bees. And it was just kind of that random thing. I just thought, you know, maybe now's the time. Um, it was a little more settled. I was through my undergrad degree and uh, had a place where I could have them. And I started with two hives 
which is a really common way to start. And then I just fell into it. I, I thought I would just have those couple hives and make, you know, a few pounds of honey a year for my own good, for brewing with and for giving away uh, to friends and family at Thanksgiving and Christmas. But then it just snowballed out of, out of control <laughs> to the point of no return. <laughs> Well, it sounds like you have a really strong passion for this practice that I feel like many people kind of consider more of a hobby for themselves, especially throughout Iowa. I've learned from talking to you a little bit in the past. Um, When you first began beekeeping, what about the practice when you were learning surprised you the most or was the hardest concept of it all to work upon? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and again, there's a couple of different ways to answer that. You know, one of the the surprising things that a lot of people come into as they're beginning beekeeping is is you just find out how much work goes into it. Um, there just seems to be kind of a notion out there that you can just get bees, put them into a hive, and then, you know, collect your honey later in the year. Um and that, that's just not the case. They take a lot of care and effort, uh, you know, to make them thrive. Yeah. So, um, you know, there, there's just a lot of work that, that goes into it. The good news is that it's really a fascinating thing. And that's the other answer for that same question is what surprised me is just how interesting these little bugs are. And I think that you'll hear that answer from anybody that you talk to. Um there's kind of a cliche in beekeeping that once you put your head in a bee box, you never take it back out again. And as cheesy as that is, it's equally true. Um, you, you just almost never meet anybody that's gotten into this. And they're like, yeah, bees are okay. I, you know, I, I pay attention to them when they need something. No, you obsess about them. You read books about them. You watch YouTube videos endlessly about them. You think about them when you're not in there. You worry about them in the wintertime. You get excited, you know, as things start to bloom and, and the temperatures come up in spring. You work through the summertime sweating and sweating and lifting heavy boxes and all this kind of stuff. And then, you know, fall or late summer comes and you're rewarded with a good honey crop and um, they just never really leave your mind. I think that's almost universal from hobbyists on up to commercial scale beekeepers. That is an amazing thing to think about because I feel like that is something that many of us that aren't in beekeeping don't consider how laborious the work can be and every detail that needs to go into it. And something that you mentioned in there that I think is a misconception through a lot of people is that people think that bees hibernate during the winter, or at least that's what I thought for the longest time. But what is beekeeping really like in the winter, Andy? Sure. Well, for a lot of islands, particularly smaller scale beekeepers that winter their bees here, um, winter comes in usually around Thanksgiving time to the first of December as our temperatures are getting too cold to do any last minute work in the hives. You better have those bees in good shape. They need to be healthy and strong and plenty of food in there. If they didn't collect enough food on their own, you know, nectar coming in that they're making honey out of and storing away, then you can supplementally feed, you know, with syrup and, uh, you know, just to keep calories on them through the winter time. But they definitely don't hibernate. And so 
on days like today, I did a bee inspection with a person over in Colfax today. They had lost two hives. They had four. And they were curious as to what happened, and they wanted to make sure that the other two would hopefully be okay. So it's a little cold to get into their hives today. But, you know, even the hive that was most in the sun, I'd say it was maybe around 30 or 31 degrees when I was there. Uh, there were a few bees flying, and they, they weren't flying far, but they were, you know, enough to be stimulated by the warmth and the sunny day we're having to get out on a little cleansing flight and, you know, see the outside of the hive and then get back in there real quick. And so, you know, even here in the first day of February here in Iowa, where it is cold, they're alive and active and they're eating the honey that they had prepared for winter. And they have a queen towards the center of their cluster, one queen per colony, right? And then thousands and thousands of worker bees. And this time of year, that queen is actually starting to lay a few eggs. So if you open up a hive on a nice day um, this time of year, you'll find at least a little fist size or so patch of brood, if not larger. And they're already, you know, rearing up those eggs through the different stages of development toward adulthood to be prepared for spring. So already spring inside a beehive is starting. <laughs> um, it takes almost a month for that egg to become an adult bee. And so when you think about it, you know, February becomes March pretty quickly and the colony will have a turnover once spring comes in. Usually about a month from now is when we'll see some maple pollen coming in. That's one of our first plants and then willow. And we'll see, you know, sunnier days and more flight and everything ramps back up. But right now they're alive and active and well. To keep rambling on, a lot of beekeepers, myself included, take our bees out to California in the winter specifically for almond pollination. And I actually just went out there last week. I drove out to California and back um, wow. just as quickly as I could, taking vacation from my full-time job to go with my bees. And uh, out there, those bees are alive and active. And, you know, it, temperatures were hitting right around 60 degrees when I was there. It felt balmy. It was, it was a great escape from Iowa weather. Um, but in the next couple of weeks, these bees are being moved into the orchards there. And those trees are going to come into bloom usually around, say, the 10th or so, maybe Valentine's Day at the latest in our area. And those trees, when they open up, the bees have all the food that they could ever bargain for. And those trees need the bees equally as much. Um, those trees are 100% dependent on honeybees to move that pollen from one flower to another in order to set the almonds. So to get their crop, they need those bees. And as a beekeeper, it's a great resource for us. It's an added paycheck and an escape from a cold winter. That is That's so cool that winter. you're able to work with people out in California and still get the same bees back in the end too. They make it happen. Yeah. In fact, I ran into a couple other Iowans out there. Um, not entirely randomly, but the next thing to it, I knew they were there and I was keeping an eye out for them. So we send a lot of bees. We send tens of thousands of bees out of our state uh, for these winter months. And um, we're just a drop in the bucket. I, I feel like, and I'm not 100% confident on this number, but I'm uh, it, the number is somewhere around two and a half million hives of bees that it takes to pollinate these almonds out there at probably an average of about two hives per acre. And so when you think about it, that's that's all of our continental states pitching in and sending bees out there. If you drive on Highway 40 right now, you'll probably pass a dozen trucks uh, loaded down, you know, semi-trucks and trailers loaded down with bees um, just in that one stretch of road that takes them out there. So it's a constant sort of artery of honeybee colonies going into Central Valley of California right now. It's an amazing thing. It, it truly sounds like it is. 
And with you being the state apiarist, is coordinating these bees to be able to get to California part of your job for anyone in the state that is interested? Or what other details of your job as an apiarist does that entail? Sure. Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I don't coordinate uh, anything. You know, these are private businesses, you know, beekeepers here that coordinate with brokers out there, which is typically other beekeepers out there that are local to the area that have trucks and trailers and can unload these semi loads of bees as they're arriving there, get the bees on the ground into holding yards. And then, you know, as the trees come into bloom soon, they'll be moving those bees starting basically right now, moving the bees into the trees there, and then they'll pull them back out as soon as the bloom is over and send them back to the beekeepers here. But all that coordination is done, you know, of course, without me getting in the middle of it all. What the state gets involved in is health certificates, and that's the the meat of my job for the late season. So um, starting usually about in August and then working until it's just too cold, um, which normally is around that first week of December, sometimes mid-December, I'm on the road almost daily working with beekeepers and doing paperwork. Um, the semi loads uh, need to have papers to be able to get easily through the guard stations in California. Um, you know how they have those entry places like needles, for example, where, uh, you know, a commercial truck can get pulled over and they have their rules about importing things like live insects. And so they're, what they're looking for isn't bee diseases in that instance, mostly they're looking for pests. So they might be looking for fire ants at the border station. And then once the bees are on the ground out there, they may be looking for other honeybee pests like small hive beetles that they don't want moved, say, into Glen County, California or whatever. And so we can do inspections here and kind of certify those as being free of those pests, um, itemizing anything that we do see. And then uh, again, itemizing everything that we don't see as well. And then they can rely on those. Most states will accept, you know, our paperwork and with reciprocity and we'll take theirs. And so that's a busy uh, time of, of year for me. And I really enjoy those big inspections. I kind of have commercial beekeeper envy. Um, I just am absolutely fascinated by what the larger scale beekeepers do and, how they get it done, it's a mountain of work. So that that's more what I'm involved in is just making sure that everything is as clean as it needs to be. Okay. And then get out of their way so they can do their work. <laughs> so then touching on that a little bit more, you mentioned how um, you need to like check to make sure there's no fire ants or any other pests infecting um, the hive. How are you able to get any of those pests out of the hive if it is infested? without harming the bees? Well, yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, here it, it would be, um, we have treatments, I guess. I'll, I'll talk about Varroa as a good example of a pest that we can eliminate uh, from a hive or at least close to it. That's not something that would be prohibitive for movement, but similar inspections need to take place anytime bees are sold. Bees are drawn combs, is sold, say, from one beekeeper to another one. And so the similar type of inspection occurs. And varroa mites are almost ubiquitous. If you're a beekeeper, you have to deal with them. But there are rules that say that the number of mites that are in your hives has to be kept within certain thresholds. That population has to be very low um, to permit sale. So what that inspection would do is just kind of put a formal number on that moment in time, right? These numbers, of course, change and grow through the season. But on the day that I would see these bees, I would do a sample uh, within that hive for the number of mites per number of, say, adult bees. 
And so that gives you a ratio. And, you know, if they're in excess of that, then cleanup would be warranted. And what they would need to do is just run a mite treatment through, which is part of beekeeping anyway. And we have several registered uh, available um, products, you know, pesticides essentially that we can use on varroa mites, knowing that they won't hurt the honeybees. And so then the expectation is just that the beekeeper will follow up with those and clean the mites prior to sale. In Iowa code, fortunately for me and fortunately for Iowa beekeepers, with our beekeeping related codes and rules, it's, it, it is, at least it, I would argue, that, that it's all um, pretty common sense. It's not very heavy handed. We don't get into a lot of, you know, details. I'm not the pesticide bureau, you know, coming out there to make sure that everybody's following their rules. I kind of keep within my lane on a lot of things and we're just looking for health. You know, we want good, clean bees. And of course, that's my wish for everybody is that they have that as well. Um and, you know, if they can accomplish that, then again, my strategy is to make sure that, that that's met and then I get out of their way and let them thrive as beekeepers or businesses. Uh, so we can use a number of tools. Um, there's a few oxalic acid uh, strategies that are kind of the new darling now for mite control. There's a formic acid based one. These are organic acids. There's a thymol one. Um, and I, I feel like, you know, these kind of chemistries, you know, uh, are intelligent ways to treat mites. We've come a long way if you look historically with the things we used to use versus what we use now for pest control. I think we're getting smarter and we're getting better at it, um, even though we're fighting that same beast varroa mites, you know, year after year after year. That's our biggest arch enemy. Absolutely. And Andy, this information is genuinely so interesting to me. I could keep asking you questions all day long, but sadly, we have been talking for about 15 minutes already. So I just want to say thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Well, yeah, thanks for letting me ramble on. (laughs) We covered a few (laughs) things. Um, If anyone's interested in beekeeping, maybe I would just say, uh, ask them to check out our Iowa Honey Producers website, which is just that. It's iowahoneyproducers.org. And on there, you'll find all sorts of information, a monthly newsletter that you can read, lists of contacts locally and at the state level. And that, of course, includes my information. I'm happy to talk to anybody. Awesome. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. Happy day. There you go, Delaney. Another great conversation to share with our listeners. We've got one more this week as we jump into a Friday episode tomorrow. So listeners, don't go too far and check back with us tomorrow, right, Delaney? Absolutely, Taylor. They can also follow along with us on social media. Find us at Ag News Daily on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Tanner, with that, should we let the people go? Let's let the people go.